scripture reading can be found in Jeremiah 29, verse 1, and verses 4 through 7. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I carried in exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Janet. Let's pray together as we uh, examine what the scriptures say to us and what God says to us through them. Oh, Lord God, help us to know your ways, teach us your paths, lead us in your truth and teach us, for you are the God of our salvation, and for you we wait all day long, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Uh, Well, it's been said that you should never mix uh, religion and politics. It's been said that you should never discuss religion and politics in polite company, Uh, This morning, we're doing both and shamelessly. Uh, And some people may be kind of put off by that. You may wonder, like, is is that okay? Is that right to do? Um, We think yes. Namely, because every single area of our lives matters to God. There is no part, there's no corner of our lives that God isn't interested in. And he's not interested in in our lives as a way to judge us or to condemn us. God is not uh, looking to crush us. But in fact, he wants us to flourish. And as far as our political lives flourish, and as far as the political landscape flourishes, then all of creation flourishes. And certainly God cares about all creation. So even politics, this is part of our premise this morning, matter to God. Now we have to decide, define what we mean by politics, because politics leaves, a, just the word leaves kind of a bad taste, a bitter taste in our mouth sometimes. Uh, And that's because we often understand it negatively. Uh, Usually politics means something like a power struggle, right? Um, Just think of the phrase office politics. It means a power struggle. There's such a thing, believe it or not, as church politics and power struggles in churches. I would imagine that there's such a thing as politics in city hall, although I'm sure they're mild and subdued and there's really not much tension or conflict there, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) In the sense that politics means trying to gain or consolidate or manipulate or amass power, uh, that kind of politics is incompatible with the Christian faith. Let me just say that loud and clear. We are not looking to gain power. But there is a sense in which power is inevitable. And it's very trendy right now, I understand, in sociological circles and, and in social kind of social studies to talk about power and different things we do as a means to gaining or losing power. Christianity approaches power in a fundamentally different way. Uh, the Christian faith teaches that power is inevitable. Some people have more, some have less, but we all have some measure of power. 
I'm going to give away the end of the sermon right here. But God calls all of us to use our power to serve those who are less powerful than we are. So it's not necessarily wrong to have power. It is wrong to try to consolidate or gain more for ourselves. Let's define politics this way this morning then. If it's not amassing power or centralizing power, what is it? At a base level, politics comes from a Greek word, polis, which means city. So politics is just how we engage with and how we serve our city. It's not about getting, it's about giving. We might call it civic engagement. And among Christians especially, this is true uh, broadly of most Christians, almost all Christians, there are two main approaches to politics. So um, you might call them the lean-in approach and the back-off approach. Some Christians say we need to approach politics, we need to lean in. And we actually see this on both the right and the left. The easiest place to see it is in national politics, and you can imagine the stereotypes. A lot of those are largely true of both the left and the right. The lean-in approach, depend, it acts as though everything depends on getting the right people into office. And so, we, you know what? Sometimes you just got to play the game, and we're just going to play the game so that we can do what we think is best. We see this on both sides. The trouble is it, it doesn't last. Think about, um, think about last time, the candidate, even in national politics, think about the last time the candidate you wanted to win office won office. Unless you're a staunch third-party voter, that was probably sometime in the last six years. Because we've had, we've had wildly different candidates win office. Did they fix everything? Well, no, of course not. Of course not. Maybe they did some things that you support. Maybe they did some things that you didn't support. But, but we understand that, that no person, no candidate, no party can fix everything. There are major shortcomings to the approach that says the way we as Christians engage with politics is by just playing the game and leaning into it. In response, there are some Christians who follow the opposite approach. They don't lean in. They back off. So they say the system's broken. It doesn't work. They recognize rightly that the system uh, is not perfect, but they kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater and say if it's broken and if it doesn't work, let's just disengage completely. We're going to be our own little holy huddle. We're going to quietly do our own thing on the side and just not even think or worry or concern ourselves with the rest of the world. That's not helpful either. There's a, there's a phrase. I don't know if you've heard this phrase. Those are the types of Christians who we say are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. Leaning in on its own doesn't work. And backing off on its own doesn't work. So how does God call us to approach politics as Christians or as civic? To, to, um, how does he call us to engage civically as Christians? You may have noticed real quick, I just have to make a quick caveat. I'm preaching to Christians here. And we know and we expect that in every service, whether in person or online, that there are people who are not Christians. And so really, you're, you're off the hook. <laughs> I'm not preaching to you. Um, we don't expect, if you don't, if you don't buy into the Christian faith, then I don't really, I can't say a whole lot to you. But it is important for you to be here and for you to hear us having this conversation among ourselves and even for you to help hold us to account for what we believe. How does God call Christians to engage in the public square? He tells us right here in Jeremiah 29, and that's what we're going to think about a little bit this morning. 
The best approach is not enthusiastic engagement. It's also not complete withdrawal. And it's not really in the middle, but it's what we might call a third option or a third way. We're going to use the phrase faithful presence this morning. A faithful presence. This phrase is from James Davison Hunter. He's a professor of sociology at the University of Virginia. Um, and the term might be here, his, but the idea isn't. It comes from Jeremiah 29, which Janet just read. And if you're here in person, that's printed in the program. I'll refer back to it, so I would urge you to keep that open and in front of you. Let me just give you a little bit of context, because this is an ancient document, and we have to translate what's going on culturally a little bit. Jeremiah was a prophet, a Jewish prophet. He's writing to Jews in the 6th century B.C. This is a long time. This is over 2,500 years ago. Now, we know, this is just historical fact, that in 586 B.C., the Babylonian Empire, which was the biggest, baddest empire at the time, was rolling through and crushing every single other civilization around them, and that included Israel. So they overran the southern part of Israel and the rest of the known world, and they were smart occupiers. They're building an empire. They're building a kingdom. And they know that the best way to keep people down, to keep, to avoid a revolt, to consolidate power, especially if you're going to take their land, is to take them from their land. The best way to take their land from them is to take them from their land. And so they forcibly took not all, but most of the Jews at that time and resettled them in other parts of the Babylonian Empire. That's roughly modern-day Iraq. The Israelites are exiles. They're exiles. It's, it's kind of like being, they're, they're more than refugees because it was unwilling. They're kind of less than slaves. They're in this awkward in-between, but they're exiles. And Jeremiah is writing to them in this period of exile. You see it right in verse 1. It says, this is the letter that Jeremiah sent to the exiles. Now, if you're in exile, think about what it might mean. It's hard for us to... We, <laughs> No, I venture to guess that none of us has approached anything close to this. But just try to put yourself there. Try to imagine what it might be like. You have no home. You're homeless. You don't know your way. You're resettled forcibly in a new place. You don't know your way around. So you don't know the best place to buy groceries. You don't know where's a good place to get my hair cut. You don't know all of these just very practical things that a lot of us take for granted. You don't speak the language of the culture. You ever been somewhere where you don't speak the language and you've tried to communicate? It's exhausting. My wife and I were vacationing in Sicily a, a number of years ago. I don't speak any Italian. I accidentally ordered four pounds or uh, really eight pounds of prosciutto instead of a quarter pound of prosciutto because of one little, one little un quarto instead of quarto in, in Italian. It's exhausting to not know the language and how to get around somewhere. You don't belong and you know it and everyone around you knows it, and you know that everyone around you knows it. It's, it's everything about your life is unsettled. You stand out. If you're an introvert, your worst nightmare is standing out like this, and you stand out. How do you live in that kind of an environment? This is what God is telling his people. And it's right there in the text. He gives it, and it's, you notice it's very, very simple and, and practical. There's kind of a three-part progression if you want to structure it. Um, he says, first, seek the good of your immediate family. Cover your basic needs. He literally says, build houses and plant gardens. And then he says, uh, seek the good of your people, the people that you're with. That's where he says, marry and, and, and have hus- find husbands and wives and have kids and then find husbands and wives for your kids. Start families. 
And then lastly, he says, and seek the good of all people. Not just your not people, not the people like you, not just your family, not just your ethnic group, but all people. That's where he says, this is verse 7, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've sent you into exile and pray for it because as it prospers, you will prosper. That includes your captors and your enemies, by the way. This is incredibly countercultural. That God isn't saying, okay, yes, I know that, I know that you've been taken for, away from your home, but just hang in there and don't worry too much about your captors. I'll take care of them. No, he actually says, seek the good of your city, of your enemies. Jesus says something very similar about 700 years later when he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, we're going to focus this morning really on the third of those kind of three items in the progression. But you'll notice all three are ways of saying, like, you're not in your forever home right now. I get that. But, but treat this temporary home as your permanent home. Live as though it is your permanent home. You don't build a house if you're not going to stay somewhere for a while. You rent. You don't plant a garden if you're just passing through. A good garden takes years to establish to get the soil, all the nutrients working in the soil. and Getting married, settling down. These are all very long-term behaviors. If you're only going to be there for a short, short while, then fine. Kind of disengage and just, just hunker down and do what you have to do to get through it. But God actually doesn't allow for that kind of detachment. He doesn't call us to detach from the world around us, even when we feel like we don't fit in the world around us. So how should we live? Verse 7. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Make a mental note of that phrase, which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now again, just imagine with me, think with me for just a minute. If you were to ask any ancient person, an Israelite or a Babylonian or anybody who had any knowledge of the situation, why were the Israelites living as exiles in Babylon, what would they tell you? Well, they, they didn't have a strong enough army. They didn't form the right alliances. They might have said something like their military was too weak. They didn't have enough people. They were, you know, whatever. You notice, you notice what God actually says here? He actually says it twice. It's once in verse 4 and once in verse 7. God says to his people, I sent you into exile. I sent you into exile. It's right there. He says he's the one who made the Israelites exiles in Babylon. But read back just three more verses. Go back to verse 1. What does it say there? It's there. It says Nebuchadnezzar carried the Israelites off into exile. So which is it? Did Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon, so he's the, he's the guy, he's the ruler. Was it Nebuchadnezzar, was it the Babylonians who carried the Israelites off into exile, or was it God? Is the Bible contradicting itself? I think if, if you think the Bible's contradicting itself there, you have a pretty low view of the intelligence of whoever wrote Jeremiah. They knew that those two were right next to each other. And, and do we really think there's a, there's a tendency? Actually, C.S. Lewis coined a phrase. Uh, he called it chronological snobbery, <laughs> where we basically assume that we're smarter than everybody who's ever lived before. We're more advanced. We're more modern. We, we, and so we're just, we're just smarter. That's a great phrase, by the way. 
That's a logical fallacy. It's, it's, it's also just kind of intellectually lazy. Of course the author of Jeremiah knew that he, maybe she, but probably he, was putting those two seemingly contradictory statements right next to each other. In fact, it's there by design. It's there on purpose. It's, it's there to call attention to itself and to make you stop and think, wait, wait. Are we in exile because of Nebuchadnezzar or because of God? And to us today, to you today, wait, wait, wait. Are you where you are, wherever you are, literally or figuratively, because of just life circumstances and because of some decisions you made, maybe some good decisions and maybe some bad decisions? Or are you where you are because God has put you there? You see, God wants us to wrestle with this question. And this question might be offensive to some people. I don't, I don't tread lightly, but I am going to tread pretty directly. What if you are where you are, God is asking, not by chance, but by design? You see, because a, ca- a casual, in this case, a casual observer of history is going to say what? Well, the Jews were conquered just like everybody else. Didn't have a strong enough army, plain and simple. That wraps that up. And it's not wrong. It's just not the whole story. What if God is working through that event that seemed so catastrophic to the Jews? What if God is working through everything? Everything. Including the tragedies in our lives. The God who says, I sent you into exile. And who says, I know it doesn't look like I'm present right now. But what if, think about it maybe a little more even specifically, what if God has put you where you are for a reason? In your neighborhood? In your workplace? In your apartment building? In your family? In your circle of friends? in your school district. All of these different places where we have relationships and interactions with people, what if God has you there for a reason? And I know from the outside it doesn't look like it was God who put you there, but what if? A different way of asking that is, what if God is doing more than you realize right now? So if if you keep reading Jeremiah, and we didn't print it in the program, but um, you can... You go home and open your Bibles. If you don't, you can Google. Just Google Bible Jeremiah 29. It'll pop right up. If you read the rest of Jeremiah 29, here's what happens. Uh, God makes a promise to the Jews. He says, you will be in exile for 70 years, and then you'll have a chance to go home. And actually, we know from some other historic documents that that's exactly what happened, some non-biblical but other historic documents. That's exactly what happened. The Jews were captives in Babylon for about 70 years, and then they were allowed to return home. But if you know your ancient history, you know that actually most Jews didn't return home. They stayed dispersed. In fact, there's a term for it. It's called the Jewish and Babylonian diaspora. It just means, diaspora means they were spread out. And that became the foundation over 600 years later, that diaspora of the global church. It was a building block as the church spread rapidly in the first centuries after Christ. You see, over 600 years before Jesus, what if God was putting parts in place 
so that the Christian faith would spread more rapidly than any other faith system has in history. Now, before you get too excited about that, let me take things down a notch and depress you again. Remember, God says in 70 years the exile will end, and it did. But think with me. How old do you have to be to understand what's going on, what God is saying? Maybe, like, let's be really generous and assume 10. A 10-year-old understands kind of what God is saying through Jeremiah the prophet. In 70 years, your exile will be over. So once the exile ends, that 10-year-old is now 80. And we know in ancient times, people didn't live as long. Which tells us most Jews in Babylon, in fact, maybe just about every single Jew who heard these words from Jeremiah died in exile. They never got a chance to realize the promise that God was giving them. Thanks for the encouragement, Chris. (laughs) And what does God call them to do? All of his people who, who know, who he knows, are actually going to, like, they're not going to experience the catharsis and the joy of moving home. They're going to die in exile. And how does God call them to respond? Settle down. Build a house. Plant a garden. Start a family. Seek the good of the city where I have called you. Now, those things sound pretty insignificant, don't they? Like almost to the point of being trite or meaningless, especially if you know that they're not going to change the world. They're not going to change history. And if your life is all about you, then I'll grant you that. Those things don't make much sense. But those of you who were here last week remember Ketley Pierre preached, she and her husband Vital. And what did she ask? The, The central question she asked was this. Are you living for your glory or are you living for God's glory? Whose glory are you living for? This is where we can circle back to this term, faithful presence. Again, James Hunter, the professor at UVA. Faithful presence means this. We faithfully, patiently, persistently engage in civic life. We seek the good of everybody, not just ourselves, the good of community over ourselves, and especially the good of those who have less power than we have, while at the same time remembering that, in a sense, this is not our final home, not exactly as it is. We're working towards something better, even while we have the realistic understanding that this is not the way it should be. But that actually helps us to live in that tension. Because the reality is, this is not as it should be. And, it, and it, none of us will ever make it exactly the way it should be. If nothing else, because none of us can agree on the way it should be. So how do we learn to live in that tension? We listen to what God says in Jeremiah 29. Which is less about what I can do to get something for myself, to get benefits, or to get power, or to get services, or to get my way. And it's more about what do I do to seek the good of everybody in the world around me. That transforms us. That little change will transform you. And at least, I can think of two ways. There are probably others. But number one, first, it just takes a huge amount of pressure off your shoulders. Because you don't have to change the world. You just have to live faithfully where you are. You know, the old, the old saying, as the saying goes, just bloom where you're planted. 
You don't have to transplant yourself. You don't have to figure out. Just be who you are, where you are, and be as faithful as you can in that. You don't have to transform the world. In fact, in Revelation, the very opposite, the very back of our Bible, God says, I am making all things new. He's doing it. That relieves us from the pressure of thinking we have to figure everything out. We've been having to figure a lot of things out over the past two years, haven't we? And it's exhausting, isn't it? It's exhausting. When we realize that in the grand scheme, God is just calling us to be faithful where we are, it frees us from all of that pressure and stress. Freedom from the, it's freedom from the pressure to fix everything. It's freedom from the pressure to make everything perfect. It's freedom, it's, it's freedom from not being allowed to make a mistake. There's incredible freedom when we realize, like, we're just not as important as we think we are. <laughs> That's the first benefit. The second is this, that an approach of faithful presence changes the questions we ask of God. You see, when you find yourself in a place that's broken or in a situation that's not ideal, instead of asking, God, why me? Why have you, what did I do wrong? Why are you punishing me? Why have you brought this on me? Instead, you ask, God, what are you doing right here, right now? And how are you calling me to participate in your work? See, you go from being a victim to being a co-creator with God. You go from being somebody who only receives to being somebody who's actually working, in a sense, alongside God towards his purposes. You see what's going on in those two different effects? It, it, it kind of guards us against two extremes. One, it guards us against thinking we're more important than we are. And in the other, it guards us from thinking we're less important than we are. If God says, I sent you into exile, then you can trust that God has you where he has you for a reason. And no, the whole world doesn't depend on you, but it also means your life is not meaningless. So what does it look like? What does it look like to seek the good, to seek peace and prosperity in our city? Let me just give you a couple examples. This is... Right off the top of my head, what in our church? I mean, we, I see, I see this all the time. This is beautiful, and our little like we're not a big church, and we're a lot smaller now after COVID. But we serve a meal every Wednesday to anybody who wants one. Something like we're averaging, I think, sixty or seventy lunches on Wednesday, and not just any lunch, but like a, a good, healthy, nutritious lunch with dignity and joy. Some of you help serve meals every month with the Salvation Army, and a couple of you just just served um, this week uh, dinners through the Salvation Army. As a church, we're able to let the Salvation Army park their truck in our parking lot and serve guests every single night. Many of you gave towards our our Christmas Eve offering, which benefited the Clipper Family Fund at at the Portsmouth High School. It benefits students in need and their families. And then some of you, this was so cool, stepped up and said, we want to match that. And so we ended up giving, I think this Christmas, we gave just over $3,200 to local middle school students, high school students, and their families uh, who just have a lot of physical needs, including some students who are homeless. 
one, one family in our church found out that there was a, um, a middle school family who didn't, uh, they couldn't afford gifts. The parents couldn't afford gifts for their uh, twin middle school students. And so um, one of you, you're here right now, a couple went out and bought just like bagfuls of gifts so the parents could have the dignity of giving their kids a Christmas morning and all these gifts. And then others of you came in and helped wrap all those gifts. This is beautiful. That's what it looks like to seek the peace and the prosperity of our city. I, I start there because I don't want this to just be feel like a browbeating sermon. You need to do more, 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 more. Like, no. Like we, well done, Middle Street. Like, we, we do a lot of really beautiful work already. But it begs the question, okay, what's next? How do, we, how do we not just let those be an end point, but how do we let those be a springboard and find more opportunities to serve and to help our city to flourish? Let me, let me just venture a couple of thoughts here. So this, this isn't really like Bible. This is just, this is Chris. We're, uh, we're really good as a church when it comes to giving money and giving stuff. I wonder what does it look like to give more than money, to be generous with our time, to be generous with our skills, to be generous with our expertise. What does it mean to be generous with our attention or, or generous with compassion and with empathy? There's a great Old Testament scholar named uh, Bruce Waltke. He's one of he's probably my favorite Old Testament. I don't know who your favorite Old Testament scholar is, but Bruce Waltke is probably my favorite Old Testament scholar. Um, and he says in the, in the Old Testament uh, there's uh, righteousness and justice are these correlated terms. But he says in the Old Testament, this is how it generally describes a righteous person, is that a righteous person is somebody who disadvantages themselves in order to advantage others. So if you read all through the Old Testament, God always honors and elevates the righteous, the people who are disadvantaging themselves in order to advantage others. And the people whom God reserves judgment for are the people who are willing to disadvantage a community in order to advantage themselves. What if we applied that line of thinking to how we engage civically? It's incredibly countercultural, I'll tell you what, to intentionally disadvantage yourself. We'll, we'll give and be generous and we'll be kind, and as, especially if it's just like skimming a little bit off the top. We'll just, I'll just give out of my excess. That's easy. But it's a whole different matter to give in a way that, that you feel it, that you actually lose something. To disadvantage ourselves in order to advantage others. I'll tell you what, I think that would send an awful loud message. A loud message to a community. And for those of us who call Middle Street our home, I, I think the message that it would send would be that we're not just some irrelevant, staid, boring institution with a big historic building in Portsmouth. No, we actually are here for the good of our city. If you look at it that way, for, for a Christian, and again, remember, I'm really talking specific. If you're not a Christian, I mean, there are principles here you can follow, but for a Christian... Political engagement, civic engagement, it's not about power struggle. It's not about amassing power or consolidating power. And we all have power in one way. By the way, again, power is not a bad thing. Like some of us have, it's just how do we use it? 
the beauty as a Christian is that when we intentionally use our power to serve those who are less powerful than ourselves, we become living, breathing parables of Jesus Christ himself. Because just think with me for a moment. Who sacrificed more power? And who in history has sacrificed more power, has given up more power than Jesus Christ? Who in history has had more power than Jesus Christ? We believe he was God. Who has more power than God? And in Philippians 2, it says Jesus set us, it says though he was exact, he had the exact nature of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be exploited. But he humbled himself, taking the form of a human. And being found in human likeness, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a Christ. You see, in Jesus Christ, God has set aside his power to serve us, we who are less powerful. In Jesus Christ, God intentionally disadvantaged himself in order to advantage others. Spiritually speaking, the scriptures teach us that we're weak, we're broken, we're sinful, and God, instead of saying, good luck with that, he laid aside his power and come, came and died so that, what? So that we would no longer be slaves to death, but so we would know eternal life. When we set aside our power for the sake of others, when we disadvantage ourselves to advantage others, we become a, a breathing portrait of Christ in our community. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. That's what he calls us to, friends. When we seek the good of our city, we become, in a sense, Christ in our city. Uh, N.T. Wright, N.T. Wright's one of my favorite New Testament theologians. He wrote this. He says, Christians are not just to be a sign and a foretaste of ultimate salvation. They are to be a part of the means by which God makes this happen, both present and future. God calls us to participate in making our city That literally means our city, Portsmouth, but that figuratively means wherever we find ourselves, a place of peace and prosperity. Why? So that all people might say, like we sang this morning, all glory be to Christ. All glory be to Christ. Let's pray. Will you pray with me as we close? Lord, help us. Give us grace. We need it. It's exciting to think about these things, and it's, it's easy to talk about them in abstract terms. Uh, it's, it's really hard to come up with practical ways, and when we try, a lot of times there are roadblo- roadblocks and obstacles and resistance. Um, surely Jesus knows a thing or two about roadblocks and obstacles and resistance. But Lord, help us. Not just to, to do these things, but, but even, even before that, give us, give us minds that look for ways to serve. It's so easy to just get stuck in our own little ruts, to get stuck in our own lives and, and just forget that there's a bigger world out there. So convict us, prick our hearts, help us to see where it is you're calling us to serve, how it is that you're calling us to live. 
Lord, we know we can't do that on our own. We need your grace, and so fill us with the Holy Spirit. Make us new. Make us altogether different. Make us your people. We ask all of these things in the powerful and the precious name of Jesus, to whom we give glory, along with you, our Father, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.